Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we'll discuss the recent NATO summit in Vilnius, where leaders met to discuss continued support for Ukraine and the Allied response to Russia's invasion. Then we'll discuss the recent resignation of Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte's government, citing irreconcilable differences over migration policy. And then we'll turn to the European Union's ongoing migration problem after EU leaders recently agreed to a new pact on asylum policy. Our interview this week will be a conversation with Agon Malici to discuss the ongoing tensions in northern Kosovo. Agon is a political analyst, activist, and media writer from Pristina, Kosovo. He was the creator and co-founder of Zbunker, an Albanian-language current affairs blog and think tank. His current work mostly focuses on malign authoritarian threats to security and democracy in the Western Balkans. Previously, he was a Reagan-Faskell Democracy Fellow at the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington, D.C. We hope you enjoyed the show. Max, let's start with this big NATO summit. Talk us through what happened in Vilnius. Yeah, so I think there's a number of big things that came out of the summit. I think this is uh, this summit in some ways will be seen as historic, but not quite as historic, I think, as the summit last year in Madrid, where NATO adopted a new strategic concept. That's a kind of every 10 years they sort of figure out what NATO's about. Uh, and that Madrid summit also came on the heels of, of Russia's invasion. This summit was a bit more, there was a bit more acrimony, you could say. I think the main thing that historians will look back and say, oh, this is the summit where Sweden essentially got over the line. And I think that's the probably the, the big development here is that uh, Turkish President Erdogan came to the summit with no one being quite sure what he was going to do. He he said that in order to support uh, Swedish NATO membership, he would need EU membership in exchange, which sort of seemed either as just sort of a clever way of getting around some of his previous comments and that everyone would say, yes, well, we endorse Turkish membership for the EU when it does all the things, or it was a way of just blocking forever. And I think, you know, Turkey has a lot of economic problems. There was a lot of quiet diplomacy. We'll see what happens with F-16s being uh, approved by Congress. That I'm not sure whether that will happen, but I think there were probably some commitments made. And so he said, yes, Sweden uh, will be a member. Uh, Hungary then quickly uh, said, oh, well, it was just a technical reason why they hadn't ratified yet. And so I think by the fall, the hope is that Sweden will be the 32nd member of NATO. And that will do a lot to, I think, Europe's uh, defense coherence and really help Nordic countries be able to really integrate their efforts and, and work more together. Because Finland being in without Sweden created all sorts of just sort of uh, bureaucratic problems for NATO military planners. Then we get to the other issue, the huge elephant in the room, and that was Ukraine. You know, there was a huge amount of advocacy for Ukrainian membership uh, in NATO, or at the very least to sort of lay out uh, a very tangible plan for, or a tangible plan or tangible timetable for Ukraine to become a member. That didn't materialize. I think what we saw was the NATO alliance t uh, adopt some language that basically was like, we really want Ukraine to join, but, you know, when we decide the time is right and, you know, we don't really know when that will be. And frankly, I think this is what it always was going to be. I was sort of surprised that everyone kind of got their hopes up. And I have to say what I, I thought was going to happen coming into the summit was that Ukraine was going to push NATO membership. 
knowing it wasn't going to happen, and then expecting really tangible security, quote unquote, guarantees, i.e. a clear number on security assistance. So the Israel style model that a lot of people have been talking about, you know, the U.S. would maybe commit to give Ukraine $30 billion over the next 10 years in terms of long-term security assistance, in addition to the short-term military aid that we're providing now, enabling Ukraine to go to defense companies and say, okay, Lockheed Martin, we want to buy 200 F-16s from you and we have the cash and here it is. That didn't really materialize. It was just, there was a G7 statement that said, we're going to, you know, each country is going to like support you and that's great, but also doesn't seem like you can take that to the bank. But do you think it didn't materialize because Ukraine was so focused and its its backers, they were so focused on the issue of membership that they didn't do the work to push for security guarantees or because there just wasn't enough support for security guarantees? No, I, I don't know. I think there may have, I think in the U.S., I think agreeing to a long-term uh, MOU with a clear number is difficult, especially with the, the current makeup of the Congress. We also don't know, uh, you know who will be president in 2025. And so there isn't this sort of lock-solid bipartisan support that you see for Israel, for instance. So, you know, any year, Congress could say, you know, this $3.5 billion that we're providing the Israelis, well, we don't really want to do that anymore. But Congress would never do that, right? And so I think that probably made the administration a little nervous that they were going to try to make a commitment that, uh, uh, that they couldn't actually, or write a check they couldn't actually cash. And I think that probably drove them to sort of say, let's let's make this really much more on a bilateral level. I think the problem with that is what I was actually excited and hoping to see is that you would have seen a big number, the U.S. providing, let's say, $25 billion, and the Europeans collectively also providing like $25 billion. So you have $50 billion. And what I think that would have been would have done is let's say America has a situation where it decides it just turns against funding Ukraine, cuts that $25 billion, that gets to zero. Well, you now have the Europeans on record. And that's that's just something I think we didn't see. I would say maybe just to shift gears away from Ukraine. I think the third thing was that this was also uh, sort of a bureaucratic check-in about where NATO was a year on from the war and trying to shift its focus on Russia. And NATO is adopting these things called regional plans, which you know we never get to see because they're classified and should remain classified, where it's basically NATO's sort of war planning. Uh, but this should provide a lot of focus for NATO members. And there's other kind of defense investment initiatives, you know, whether 2% is the, the floor or not. I, I think there was some good steps, good stuff done here. My broader frustration is this wasn't a summit about getting Europeans to work together or coordinate their efforts more. It was just sort of everyone's spending more. And now we're going to set these targets of Europeans, you know, need to have 300,000 ready forces when, you know, they can barely get like 5,000 to Estonia or, or, you know, the Baltic states. So I think there are some really ambitious goals that don't really look achievable to me. And then NATO hasn't really used the last year and a half in, in the US and the EU to really push European defense cooperation. And this is a good plug for a report that Otto Svensson and I did and that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, but I think is really important is that European defense cooperation is declining. And if Americans want the Europeans to be able to, you know, do their bit and fight together and not just have everything come through us, well, we need to really, I think, shift gears in, in how we're engaging Europe and NATO and the EU when it comes to defense. This is one thing that I find bizarre. You know, when we talk about like the G7, this is a little side side note. On the G7 or, you know, in, in kind of even P5 negotiations uh, with Iran, like the EU is there. 
But then in NATO, it's like the EU, you know, attends a summit, but it's not, it can't be part of it. It can't be part of this like exclusive club. But we've made it a part of the G7 because it would be ridiculous not to. And that's where we sort of are, I feel like, in NATO-EU relations. And I highlighted the NATO-EU statement that came out of the communique, which just looked like the same boring, like paranoid language from the US and NATO of like saying NATO-EU cooperation is really important and then putting all these caveats about, well, if the EU spends any money, it has to potentially buy American. I don't see any language about how, you know, the, the Congress really needs to buy European, but we get stuck in these kind of bureaucratic cul-de-sacs that, that I think we really are with NATO and the EU, and therefore NATO isn't leveraging uh, the EU's ability to really advance uh, defense uh, cooperation and integration. It's probably force of habit. But since we talked about elections for next year, we have another one now for this year on the horizon, and that is in the Netherlands, because the government of Prime Minister Mark Rutte collapsed on July 7th. They all cited irreconcilable differences over migration, which has been an ongoing problem in Dutch politics in particular, across Europe as well, but Dutch politics in particular for a multitude of reasons. Rutte himself has been pretty hard line on immigration, but he sees to his right several parties that want an even more hard line migration policy across Europe. Um, but now his government will be a caretaker until November 22nd, which is uh, right now the date we have for this next election. This is kind of a big deal because Rutte has been the longest serving prime minister in the Netherlands for 13 years. He's been leader of his party for 17, which is no small feat. He's been just a fixture of European politics as well. He's been to every council. The only leader who's been there more is Orban in Hungary. What's interesting to me is the other three parties in the in the governing coalition reports are that Rutte and his refusal to budge on the question of migration is what brought the government down because he just there was no compromise that could be reached some people say it was a ploy a political ploy on his part to make migration an election issue it's hard to tell just yet but it's going to have implications for sure one it's um It's going to stall some negotiations at the European level. For Dutch politics itself, Rutte being such a visible figure in his party, stepping down as leader because he's not going to run again to lead his party into the election means it's very hard to tell uh, how his, his party is the People's Party for Freedom and Democracy, who takes over. And having a new figure be the leader three months, four months away from an election is pretty hard to make that person really call the shots and convince the public that this is someone you can trust because they are different from Rutte or whoever. And his party, his coalition partners are polling not that great either. And we've seen the emergence in the meantime of this new agrarian party that's called the Farmer Citizen Movement. Uh, this is a party that did pretty well in provincial elections earlier this year, but We'll see if they can hold on until until the end. But there are new entrants, and that's not new in Dutch politics. We've seen new parties emerge over the years and do really well. And at the same time, the far right continues to do really well, especially the uh, Geert Wilders Party uh, for Freedom. And it's possible we could see an alignment of those forces to the right of Makuta's party. Yeah, I think what was sort of stunning about this collapse is that it wasn't just Ruta sort of saying, oh, I'm done, but also Sigrid Kog of D66, which is sort of the, had kind of emerged as sort of the center left party or the kind of liberal party. 
She also is stepping down in part because of uh, what she said, described as a harassment and attacks uh, that she had gotten from the far right uh, and sort of the intimidation and that her, her family basically begged her not to run. And also, I think the foreign minister as well. So it, it creates a, a huge vacuum in Dutch politics. And as you mentioned, Dutch politics is sort of crazy. It's like we've had this sort of sense of real stability because it's had one leader over 13 years. But we've also in that time kind of the the collapse of of the traditional center-left party, the, the Socialist Party. And so there's real, I think, uncertainty about w- which, which direction Dutch politics goes. Um, I think it's going to be a, a really interesting, not only an election, but then once they have the election, it takes a long time for them to form a government. And so this really raises uh, questions about, you know, we were nervous about the Spanish presidency because Spain is is about to have an election. And, oh, my God, they're also chairing the the, uh, Spain's presidency of the EU Council. What would this mean? Could they get things done? Well, this sort of really makes it a little bit even more difficult because Ruta will will still be there uh, because he'll he'll sort of uh, essentially be the kind of lame duck prime minister. But it's not going to have a lot of bandwidth, I think, to really push new things. The one thing I'd say about Ruta, which is really interesting, is he sort of reflects, I think, the evolution of the center right when it came to approaches to the EU. I think initially sort of guarding against this populist wing, being sort of very EU skeptical, oftentimes being uh, the fruit guy that was sort of stopping uh, efforts to address uh, broader EU problems, sort of solving the, the, the euro crisis. But then what happened is that he evolved. And, and I think this is largely, you know, we saw around uh, the aftermath of Brexit to being a much more of a problem solver. So being able to work with Emmanuel Macron uh, behind the scenes and sort of figure out and negotiate ways to get things done. And you didn't see the Dutch as oftentimes as the last holdout on an issue and could really move things over the line. Maybe not as much as, as some of us would have liked, but I think a conservative that then became recognizing the value of the EU and wouldn't do things to actually torque of the European Union. Sure. Although I think, and that that's just my my opinion on this, I think he's been very good at projecting the image of a problem solver. And he was like this for years. But my sense over the last few years, both domestically and at the EU level, is he has been more prone to throwing a wrench into a lot of different negotiations from the Stability and Growth Pact to still blocking Romania and Bulgaria's uh, Schengen accession, although he's not to be clear, the Netherlands is not the only one. There are other issues with this particular file. But I think he's, his ability to be an actual problem solver has declined, which is probably normal when you've been in power for 13 years and you've headed multiple different kinds of political coalitions. And as you mentioned, Dutch politics are kind of crazy. The coalition last time in the 2021 elections, it took them, it took them months and months and we, they didn't have a government formed until early 2022. So this government's been in place, actually, the fourth Ruta government for a year and a half, maybe. I'll be watching this pretty closely. I think it has an impact for the European Council as well, because Ruta is part of Renew Europe. And if it switches to either an EPP or a non-aligned party, a non-affiliated, that'll change the balance of power. Right. And this is, of course, if you have a a domestic 
political party, you also then align with a broader European political party. But maybe we'll we'll shift gears to talk about our final subject, to talk about migration. Now, the government, Dutch government sort of fell on the issue of migration, read sort of mixed things that some of this described it as a problem of the Dutch own making that in trying and sort of defunding a lot of the refugee efforts, they've created their own mess. And then hence sort of that then creates this, this concern that suddenly they're going to have more refugees come in and they don't have the capacity because they've underfunded the capacity. But it touches what is one of the most polarizing, difficult issues in European politics, oftentimes I think really reflects a lot of the debate that we have here in the United States. There have been some really tragic events and incidents over the summer. There was a a migrant boat that was filled with hundreds of uh, refugees, many people from the Middle East, from Pakistan. And I think the number is more than 600 people are believed dead and missing in, in the Mediterranean. And what has made this really, this whole incident, I think, really explosive was that Frontex, the EU border service, was monitoring this boat, you know, was paying attention to it, the Greek Coast Guard as well. And then when the boat capsized, and there's a lot of uncertainty about why it actually capsized or how, what caused it to, there wasn't the kind of response that one would really expect the EU, particularly given uh, the EU sort of past trumpeting of its humanitarian credentials to go in and save people that are drowning at sea. And this is, a lot of the people who died were the women and children who were below deck. And so this is just, you know, an extraordinary tragedy. It also comes on the heels of earlier this summer, there was a video captured of uh, the Greek Coast Guard putting women and children uh, on a boat and then basically pulling it out into the middle, uh, into Turkish waters. Uh, so it wouldn't be their responsibility and, and potentially threatening the lives of these people. One of the things that we've seen is the EU completely shift in many European countries, completely shift, uh, or maybe not completely, but you know, it's not as if Europe was ever wholly welcoming, but really uh, the concern over the rise of far right populism has led to a really hard line when it comes to refugees and migration. And on the one hand, I I sort of understand the politics, but on the other hand, we may be getting into territory where the EU is starting to take action that is downright condemnable. And I think there needs to be real questions raised, maybe not by Washington, because I think we have our own issues, but by Europeans themselves about what's happening at the EU level. What is EU funding producing? Yeah, I mean, short Washington would be hard for us to ask questions, but there are similar challenges on the political front, just like on the logistical front of how to manage a border and how to manage migration, both irregular and regular illegal pathways. The term that comes to mind for me every time I think about how the EU and its member states individually have managed migration since the quote-unquote migration crisis of 2015-2016 is abdication. They've abdicated not only the issue to the far right across the continent, but they've also abdicated the actual management of migration to what they call third countries or neighborhood countries. Uh, We see this, we can talk about this in more detail. We see this with the deal that they just struck with Tunisia uh, to provide support to Tunisia for border management. They've done this before with Mali, with Niger, uh, with Libya, which, or Turkey. Yeah, Turkey was the most prevalent one. It was the first one too, it was like six billion euros to ask Erdogan to basically manage the problem when at the time it was mostly coming from Syria. And basically what the EU is doing here is saying, hey country, if you stop migrants from from taking off from your shores, here's a pot of money. Mm -hmm. 
And we don't really care how you do it. I mean, they maybe there's technically yes, but it's a it's effectively a payoff scheme to prevent migration. And the reason they have to do this is because there still isn't agreement about how to relocate and manage asylum seekers that come to the actual border of the European Union. Because member states, some are at the front line of it. Greece, Italy, Cyprus, uh, Spain, Malta, take your pick. They are the frontline states for reception of asylum seekers. But a lot of other member states refuse, categorically refuse to relocate asylum seekers. When you look at the numbers, it's not always that high. It would be possible if there was an actual systematic approach to it. And the reason they're so reliant on those third countries is because it's the hot potato for external borders. They don't want to touch it, even though over the last eight years, they've poured increasing amounts of money into Frontex, the border agency, to train them, although we could discuss whether that's actually yielding results on the training. They've equipped them with a lot of gear, and still we can't agree on the main files. Now, there's been some movement on the uh, Migration Asylum Pact, so we'll see. I think that they're trying to finalize the negotiation before the European Parliament elections of next year, because once you're past that, I think it's going to be even more difficult to find an agreement. But there are a lot of really complicated files that they need to settle until then. It's like how to screen those asylum seekers. What does it mean to have solidarity across the block? You, they, they will not just politically, they will not force member states to take asylum seekers or refugees. So instead, they're looking at arrangements or, well, if you don't want to take a person, you can provide money so that we help relocate that person somewhere else. And it just keeps being this hot potato that it, it just feels to me like the wide center, interpreted widely, is so afraid of its own shadow because they see this far right force across the continent, which had subsided a little bit and now is back on the up, especially with Giorgio Meloni in Italy, some of the forces we see in the Netherlands, for example. So they're just there's so much fear that creates so much political pressure. Yeah, I think. I think when it comes to the politics of this, it'll be really interesting to see how it evolves. Because part of me thinks that this is sort of where we're pay the the politicians are focusing on yesterday's problem and yesterday's issue that may not have the same uh, resonance uh, as it does today. I mean, I think there's a broader point is that economically this is crazy because you know Europe is an aging continent that is desperate to actually have injection of new sources of labor, particularly people that are you know immigrant labor that is coming to Europe and making these sacrifices because they, you know, uh, want, want jobs in, in a future. Um, but I do think that this also reflects how we sort of see the Europe evolve more generally. Look, the EU was like, well, we're going to open borders in between states. And, you know, th through our union, everyone can travel and live everywhere. And that's fantastic. And then suddenly you realize, wait, wait a second, we don't have a common border force. We don't have a common uh, immigration policy. Uh, oh my God, we have a total mess and people are coming here. We have the Cypriots selling, you know, uh, EU passports and a number of other countries uh, to, to Russian oligarchs. Like, oh my God, we have to get a handle on this. And then what you start to see is the EU moving to needing to create a common policy. And I think it is a case where as much as the countries that are intaking a lot of the refugees, you know, like Italy 
Italy has an aging society, can figure out ways to integrate these populations. There's also all the strain is being put on uh, these countries where, you know, you have Italian uh, naval uh, sailors that are having PTSD from just collecting people constantly and the, the trauma there. And so this, I think, is going to be an ongoing issue. Maybe the final point I would I would make on this is that it it does also demonstrate that this notion of the EU sort of being very soft and the Europeans being soft. I mean, when it comes to protecting the union and you had Iraqis that were sent by Vladimir Putin through Belarus to try to create an, an, a second wave of migration crisis on the Polish border. And what happened is the Poles said no, and they started erecting fences. And then instead of saying, you know, oh, well, actually people are freezing to death on the other side. This isn't right. The EU commission comes in and says, you know, we're with you in solidarity and we're not going to allow this to happen. It demonstrates that the EU is willing to do what it takes and can be kind of cold and heartless. We'll, we'll do whatever it takes to really protect us its union. I think the UK has figured that out. And unfortunately, lots of migrants are, are you know, suffering and dying uh, in part because of uh, concerns about the direction of European politics. Okay. Well, there's a, a lot more to talk about on migration, but uh, I think this is uh, sort of a good place to stop. And we'll uh, now move to our, our interview to talk about the future of the Western Balkans. Agon, thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited to have this conversation about really important developments in Kosovo and Serbia in recent weeks. So we've seen in November 2022 in the north of Kosovo, Serb officials and some mayors resigned in protest of a law that Kosovo passed around uh, license plates and cars. In April, there were elections in some of these municipalities to replace these mayors, and Serbian parties boycotted the elections, which saw uh, ethnic Albanians' mayors get elected instead with the lowest turnout in Kosovo history. Uh, that sparked protests in the north from uh, ethnic Serbs who didn't want the mayors to take office, and since then, tensions have just kept going up. We saw uh, NATO peacekeepers get injured in some of these protests. Uh, the international community has called for mayors not to take office, even though they've called the elections legitimate. And since then, the Euro-Atlantic community has asked Kosovo to try and de-escalate the tensions. We've seen some inflamed statements come from Serbia as well in the middle of all all this tension, and uh, in late June, the EU had adopted sanctions against Kosovo to try and force the government not to have these mayors sit in. So let's let's start there. This is a pretty complicated situation. Can you help us understand how we got here? In only 20 minutes. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, usually Balkan histories, you know, start with uh, medieval history. So I'll try to, you know, start with the more recent things. It's important to understand the, uh, you know, is what's happening in the north uh, with license plates, with ID cards last year, uh, now with the mayors, is effectively a battle of, uh, for con effective control over the north. And it's just, a, you know, these are all symptoms of the failure of the bigger dialogue in Brussels. Ultimately, ultimately for over a decade, the, uh, you know, uh, the Brussels dialogue has failed to deliver largely because the U.S. accession process has stalled and removing um, the incentives, the key incentive for both sides uh, to engage. 
And then, so yeah, and then you have a kind of a stalemate where the sides try to kind of push and uh, try to change the reality on the ground in the north. For Serbia, that's basically wanting to establish some sort of a, a territory there where they claim they have effective territory. So they, for example, they withdrew the mayors only in the north, but not in the southern Kosovo Serb municipalities in a way as to create a situation where the North will be negotiated. So this is all done against the backdrop of the negotiations in Brussels and this issue of the association of uh, Serbian majority municipalities, which is one of the key and most controversial points of that. So whatever we're seeing in the North is effectively, I, I call it a Balkan form of negotiation. This is how we negotiate. <laughs> uh, so hardball uh, negotiating by trying to assert yourself um, uh, for Kosovo, that is basically insisting uh, that if the Serbs are boycotting, then, then these mayors are legit and they have, they, they, ha they have the right to go to their offices and be escorted by Kosovo police, despite their very low legitimacy. And uh, for the Serbs to claim through violent groups uh, who attacked NATO soldiers, uh, uh, to say that, you know, well, you know, uh, in this part of the country, Kosovo does not really have uh, uh, control. So hence, this is up for negotiation. So I would more look at these broader, bigger dynamics than what is, you know, these sporadic, you know, because I know for foreign observers, you know, they see this news on flashpoints, some tensions in the north. These are really just symptoms of a failed dialogue in Brussels and of these uh, and of the sides kind of trying to uh, uh, use this situation in between to kind of uh, increase their leverage. I'm glad you mentioned the broader the broader context, I think that's really important because we've had so many discussions in the last six months about EU accession and what it can do, what the, the positive force that it can have in some countries. Obviously, this conversation these days is focused on Ukraine, but inevitably this conversation veers into the Western Balkans and potentially the negative impact of a stalled process. And we've seen this for years uh, in some countries more than others, but this is a real, this is a real problem. Can you walk us through briefly the association of municipalities? Because I think it seems like a small thing, but it's a huge dis point of discussion. It's a huge point of tension in the negotiated process and the EU-led process. And it seems no one has a good solution to really implement it. Well, you know, I'll start with the EU thing because that was really the key thing. That's why the Brussels, the, the dialogue was anchored in Brussels. The idea was that with both countries wanting to join the EU, it provided leverage for the EU, you know, through conditionality. And, you know, at some point when Serbia was ready to join, it would recognize Kosovo. It, it was a form of unlocking Kosovo that way. When that stopped, uh, the EU accession stopped, you know, being uh, sort of that, that instrument. So there were ways trying to, you know, they were, they were trying to find ways to accommodate Serbia. Um, and one of the ways was this association of um, Serbian majority municipalities. The fear in Kosovo is that this would produce some sort of um, an entity uh, similar to the one in Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Republika Srpska, and would make Kosovo dysfunctional. Kosovo already made uh, concessions in the Ahtisari plan when it declared independence in 2008. It, just it didn't just declare independence, it kind of did so with, you know, by providing the West with and minorities with guarantees, so extensive minority rights. Adding this new layer of government, the fear was that this would you know, really create a dysfunctional state. That's, that's the, the gist of, of, of the fear in Kosovo. Although the agreements that were signed in Brussels on the ASM uh, 
do not necessarily mean that. You know, there is still a lot of space there uh, for Kosovo to, um, you know, create a more benign uh, entity. But it has become a bit toxic politically because the current governing party in Kosovo um, had used its opposition to the ASM. It was like its main rallying point when it was in opposition. So now for them, it's a really sensitive topic to agree to it, no matter what the content is, because it has this bad brand uh, of, of basically installing a mini-Serbia within the country. So that's a difficulty for the Kosovo's prime minister uh, to accept it. So, uh, and, um, you know, it has a huge political cost uh, for, him, for him personally. Well, and when you see Republika subscribe, it's easy to have concerns. It's not the best advertisement for, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Probably a more niche question, but you talked about how this potentially, politically, this is positive for Kurki and for Vucic. Do you think Vucic still has credibility among Serbs in Kosovo? Uh, that's a difficult question to answer because electorally the Serbian list which he controls, uh, which is the dominant political party, usually gets all the votes, uh, but it's, uh, there's a lot of engineering there in how they get it and, and, and how authentic is that support. They seem to be losing in the north in terms of uh, credibility uh, and control uh, uh, over some parts of the population because they have relied on elements, uh, you know, to sort of enforce their policy on elements that have been tied to organized crime, including groups sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury uh, last year, and not like local uh, authority figures. Kosovo Serbs have very little agency in what in what's in what's going on. One of the few leaders who had that uh, was assassinated a couple of years ago, Oliver Ivanovic. So the, in a way, they are uh, a non-factor, unfortunately, in this conversation uh, and subject to, to whatever Belgrade wants, uh, while at the same time being under uh, uh, sort of the pressure of, of the government in Kosovo to sort of uh, submit to the authority. That seems like a lot of level of disenfranchisement uh, in this entire picture. Egan, we've been talking a lot about the EU's role and in, in the the stalling of the ascension process, then leading to basically a, a stalemate, and so it seems like sort of reverting back to where we were, you know, years, decades ago. I'm curious what you see the role of the U.S. is here, because it's I think pretty clear to me that the EU seems like the driving uh, factor. But what role is the U.S. playing, and what role do you think the U.S. should be playing? Nothing in the Balkans moves without the U.S., to be honest. Even as EU accession stalled over the last uh, decade, uh, NATO accession continued. So, you know, where the U.S. has more say, things have moved. And the U.S. has, you know, been always a more vocal supporter of the countries uh, uh, joining the EU or wanted to them to, to the EU to move faster on the Balkans. It has a lot of leverage on uh, because of its security presence, its investment here, and also uh, it, it, the influence it has, for example, on the especially on the Albanian-speaking part of the Balkans, in Albania, Kosovo, where it, it, it is kind of seen as the more trustworthy uh, partner. The U.S. usually steps in, unfortunately, only when the EU kind of messes up. I think over the last year, the EU and the U.S. have been quite in sync, to be honest. This French-German proposal uh, to resolve the Kosovo-Serbia dispute is sort of has a strong U.S. Uh, role behind it as well. So um, uh, unlike in the Trump administration, where there was clear uh, divergence in terms of approaches, particularly between the U.S. and Germany, on how to uh, uh, resolve uh, the issue, I think that now there's a similar outlook and, and a similar sense of urgency. So the, the U.S. and the EU are working in sync. There's a limited thing that you limited to what U.S. can do because U.S. is not part of the EU. It cannot really force the EU to move faster. 
but you know, I guess as part of the broader transatlantic conversation over a wide range of issues, the US, US can always uh, know, raise the issue of the Balkans higher on the agenda with, with the EU as something where, uh, where the EU needs to move faster because the EU is, the, is the, actually the, the, the key actor. And there, just like in Ukraine's case, uh, we haven't seen, I mean, except for some sort of rhetorical kind of still promises for uh, EU accession, we still haven't seen substantial moves forward. During the, um, the, the Trump administration, there was a, a high-profile push by the president of bringing leaders to, to Washington, to the Oval Office. That appeared to make some headway. And I, I guess the difference in tact in the Biden administration is that while there was some sort of senior-level emphasis put on, uh, on trying to forge a peace agreement in the Trump administration, this has sort of been relegated to lower-profile officials in the, in the Biden administration. Do you think that that is a problem? Is this something that, you know, if, if very senior leadership, if Tony Blinken were to get on a plane tomorrow and, and sort of make this a priority, do you think they could make a lot of headway, or is this sort of being handled in the right, right way? Oh, absolutely. The higher the level, the more uh, the U.S. would be able to play a role. You know, as I said, the, the reputation of the U.S. in Kosovo is very uh, high. So uh, people, the higher the, you know, the level in the U.S., the more influence that would have. And I think also in Serbia's case, while both sides acknowledge that actually, you know, the EU is their main trade and, you know, future political uh, address, the prestige and the way that the U.S. brings its convening power, like, you know, just the power of the White House, for example, is really important. I think the U.S. also wants to kind of tread lightly on this, especially this administration, uh, you know, which has more sensitivity towards the EU than the Trump administration in sort of not taking that kind of a leadership role on an issue which effectively is a European security matter. So they would rather prefer to have the EU take the leading role and the US kind of be the, on the, in the back, provide a more diplomatic muscle. But, I, but I, I do think definitely that the US would have this more uh, convening power and, um, and even authority and, uh, and credibility, I would say, as well, than the EU which, with which both sides have serious grievances which is in a way asymmetric in the approach to both sides because five members of the EU do not recognize Kosovo. So there's a certain degree of status neutrality in the way how EU treats Kosovo. Even though 22 of the members do recognize Kosovo, the vast majority, uh, the EU as, as a whole uh, has a bit of more of a status neutral uh, position. So. The U.S. involvement kind of balances that out. But as I said, you know, there's a sensitivity that the U.S. does not want to, especially this, the Biden administration, uh, would not want to sort of step on the EU on this. That's an interesting turn of events, I feel like, that there would be this kind of deference to the EU. Maybe it's just we have grown not used to it anymore. Uh, but at some point it may become counterproductive. At the same time, you've mentioned that in the past year or so, the two, the two sides have been relatively in sync I feel like when it comes to the sanctions, for example, and asking Kosovo to, to de-escalate, they have been in alignment. So we see we see some element of uh, of alignment here, although sanctions have come from the EU, but not as uh, proactively from the U.S. How is this perceived? I wouldn't say that the U.S. is not involved at the higher levels. For example, uh, Derek Cholet from the State Department and, you know, AUM Secretary Blinken is involved in some key moments, uh, you know, with phone calls. 
with with the leaders. I, I think to a similar degree, degree for like for example, Armenia, Azerbaijan, it's it's kind of at that level, I think, as an item on on, on the State Department's agenda. And I think the National Security Council definitely took notice uh, when the tensions uh, got got very high. And I think also on the sanctions issue, um, uh, what's been reported on the media is that it starts with the EU because their EU has more leverage in terms of the day-to-day things, trade, econ- economy. But the U.S. did take some measures. For example, it canceled uh, Kosovo's uh, Defender 23 exercises. And I think there are some other measures lined up. Um, just, just a few days, just yesterday, actually, uh, the head of Serbia's intelligence service was sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. So I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. also has uh, measures lined up. Yes, that, I saw that. And Vulin's response was colorful, to say the least, as, as he always is. How is this push for sanctions perceived in Kosovo and then in the region, because this is this is a pretty big deal. From from the EU, you see mostly pre-accession funds being suspended or limited. That could be up to what five hundred million euros. That's that's a huge amount. There's various reactions to this. Everybody looks at, looks at it from a national angle. So in, in Kosovo, it's seen as asymmetric, and uh, the fact that you know, well, why doesn't why doesn't Serbia also get its share of of, of punishment? I do think the key problem with the West, Western approach right now is excessive focus on sticks and, you know, not many carrots, because that's what's actually missing. You know, um, uh, an agreement was signed in Brussels in February and uh, an implementation plan was attempted, was signed, but it was basically just a phase saving measure in Ukraine in April. Uh, it was supposed to be very detailed in terms of who does what by when. Uh, uh, and because the sides couldn't agree, it was just a very general text. So it, it effectively meant nothing. The key problem here is that, again, as I said, the carrots, uh, you know, uh, there is absolutely no incentive for Serbia uh, to move forward, no EU accession in sight, and not just because the EU does not want to, but because in the meantime, while the EU's doors was shut, there was irreversible damage done to Serbia in terms of democratic standards. So even if it EU would be wanting to right now, um, Serbia is not an acceptable candidate. And so, um, so, so Vucic is in a position where he's doing everything to undermine uh, the agreement because he sees nothing in it for him, except for political costs. On Kosovo's side, uh, except for the issue of the ASM, for which it's unclear, uh, you know, the guarantees in terms of what powers it would have, it's also the issue of the non-recognizers in Europe. This is one of the key issues for Kosovo. Uh, you know, can the U.S. guarantee that the five, at least four, because four NATO members do recognize Kosovo as a result of this agreement, and then open a NATO path, a membership path for Kosovo? Without these kind of guarantees, these are being kind of uh, uh, mentioned as incentives. But there are no guarantees for this, so, so both sides don't really see what they stand to benefit, except for the political costs for their careers, and end up uh, taking unilateral steps, measures that uh, kind of prolong this, make the drama bigger, and look good politically, domestically, actually, for both Vucic and Kurti, what's been happening has been great domestically. I don't, I'm not sure the san- san- sanctions themselves will work. Uh, or will produce the desired impact uh, unless it's, it becomes clear what the benefits are. Right. It, it seems like you're painting a pretty grim picture of where things are headed because, you know, currently it seems like the U.S. and the EU and the international community saying, don't do it, don't do that. But then there's incentives actually to keep, to keep the tension up. Um, much more so than there is to sort of settle things down, short of any sort of 
real shift uh, on the part of the European Union. I'm curious if there's anything short of of really getting the the EU ascension process back on track, which hopefully it does, courtesy of of the Ukraine war, sort of prompt the enlargement to become a a major topic again. But is there anything short of that that could really create some more positive movement? It's it's difficult to see, to be honest, from from this point. Now, as we speak, uh, the escalation plan for the North uh, is being seriously discussed and uh, looks like the current crisis will be over and that the sides will return to the negotiating table on the bigger dialogue. Uh, But as we've seen over the past year, uh, you know, it's very, I I can very easily foresee a scenario where where we'll be back in the same place again uh, on some other issue. It was license plates, IDs, now it was mayors. We will continue to to be back uh, unless the the bigger process and the dialogue uh, is, is, is concerned. I do think there are certain things that could be done on the Kosovo side, especially, uh, and that's the issue of the non-recognizers. You know, these are NATO members, uh, at least four of them. It's not many of them, and uh, some sort of a working process between that the U.S. could lead with these countries. Uh, you know, some have big reservations, like Spain. Some have very small. You know, need a little bit of nudging, like Romania, Greece, and uh, uh, and Slovakia, for example. You know, that could be a huge step. In getting, it's not it's not an EU process. It's a NATO process that could be huge uh, to get Kosovo uh, moving uh, and see a little bit of a transatlantic perspective for itself. Uh, right now, it's very hard to see. The EU has, for more than a decade, kept Kosovo isolated with visa liberalization. Uh, this was, you know, compared to the other parts of the region. So I think this this has played a tremendously negative impact. Uh, so now what we're seeing with these sanctions and these uh, punitive measures is more of a, uh, actually a more of a, a negative response of like, you know, well, you know, uh, we can take it. So I really would emphasize this sort of practical, uh, um, even the economic part, you know, if, even if, we, if there is no uh, EU accession, like full membership perspective, perhaps this idea of, of staged accession is being discussed where Western Balkans countries get the perks and benefits of membership at early, even before some of the perks, even before becoming members, like access to programs, you know, things like that. I do think they they could float some of these things around, but that has to be done a bit more decisively and more um, in a more effective way. Um, You know, we haven't seen much from the EU uh, except for um, signaling and just rhetorics for, for a very long time now, and the credibility is at its lowest point. Maybe, maybe just one final question. You're speaking to us from Al- Albania, another candidate country for EU membership. Is there just broader growing frustration in the Western Balkans? And if there is no clear path for EU membership, and if that really you know doesn't look like that it's going to be revived in the next few years, where do you think countries like Albania, where do you think the Western Balkans uh, head uh, going forward? What do you think, how, you know, sort of projecting out, how do you see the, the future of the region progressing? Thankfully, there's been, you know, on a good side, it's been resilient. So uh, I'm optimistic in the sense that, you know, it could have been worse. <laughs> And part of the resilience has to do with NATO membership of not just Albania, but especially Montenegro and North Macedonia. If the, if the NATO membership was not there for these countries in this current context, we would be talking about a much bigger uh, problem. 
So there's that. Um, and, you know, for as long as there is this transatlantic unity uh, on the Balkans, um, I think things could be relatively stable. The problem is that this policy of containment, because basically the Balkans are just be, being contained, is not sustainable over the long run, because in the meantime, we're losing out on investments. Uh, out-migration is a huge problem. So um, the development lag is just increasing. So uh, in time, this will take its toll. Security problems will emerge. So for, you know, EU accession was the key peace building instrument. It made borders irrelevant. The moment that is put into question, borders become more important. And ethnic borders where you have a lot of these disputes can always reemerge. A couple of years ago, I would have never thought that issue of border correction would become on the agenda. It did. It still can, I would say, and especially in, you know, uh, you never know what happens in the U.S. election, uh, uh, what happens, all it takes is for one far right party to win in Europe to again derail things. I really think there's an urgency to solve this now uh, and not leave these threads open uh, for any of these potential scenarios because this could become a security flashpoint um, at, at, in, in any moment. While for now it is resilient, I, I'm really worried about uh, these kind of you know, uh, negative scenarios globally and European level. Uh, if they find the Balkans in this current state of affairs, um, you know, it, could, it, could be, uh, it, it could be a recipe for, for, for bigger problems. Well, uh, on that cheerful note, Egan, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the Eurofile. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, as always, and to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.